Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I am here, and I'm talking about the scriptures yet again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you do. I mean, I don't know what yeah. you'd be doing or what your conversations be focusing on in your free time or with, you know, your other friends and stuff. But I do know that usually when you be in social settings, mm-hmm. you'd be like, this reminds me of something in the in the Bible or in the New Testament or something like yep, that. So you just me. Be, I mean, that is you. I think you I, I think you would love being in school. And, you know, this is just my plug again for you to come join me here in New York. But, you know, you do what you want to do. It's totally fine. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I just want to let you all know off the rip that we are about two hours removed from the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. I am still sorting through my feelings, so if my energy is a little bit lower in this particular moment, I do apologize. Just want to let you guys know that is more or less what is going on in my mind. That is what is, you know, just tumbling around in my soul Mm -hmm. at this particular Mm -hmm. moment. And uh, again, I I don't know exactly how many black listeners we got, but, you know, give yourselves permission to unplug, turn off the news, do whatever else y'all got to do. Just... You know, take care of yourselves, log out of social media, find peace, whatever you got to do. By the time this rolls around, it's going to be Monday, so it's going to be a couple of days later. But if you're still struggling with it, just mm-hmm. I encourage everybody to uh, engage in some kind of self-care, find some kind of community that you can decompress, debrief with, or just otherwise chill with it this time because, um, you know, there are some complicated feelings and emotions that we have to yet again deal with at this uh, at this moment in history. Right. Yeah, that's all I that's all I want to say mm-hmm. about that. Um, anyway, uh, if, if there's nothing else we have to say by uh, I'm sorry by by way of introduction, let's just go ahead and jump into the content for this week. But before we do that, I want to remind y'all that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Today, we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 135 and 136. These are the sections uh, covering, first off, the immediate aftermath of the martyrdom of the Prophet Joseph and the patriarch Hiram Smith. And uh, these words in section 135 are written by John Taylor, again, talking about or directly addressing the um, martyrdom of of. Uh, of Joseph and Hiram. And then we have section 136, which I think is the first section we get where the revelation is coming through uh, Brigham Young, as opposed to Joseph Smith or, you know, anybody else. But I think this is Brigham Young's first, um, what do you call it? Revelation. And I think right. we'll get into that. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, it is, I'm trying to think, what is this revelation directly addressing this this has something to do with uh brigham young leading folks across the uh iowa territory and Mm. uh, i think this is some kind of council meeting and the prophet brigham young is asking the lord to reveal basically the uh the best manner of i i think it says organizing companies for immigration and uh this is where the lord is answering this is president young commencing to give uh, quote, word and will of God concerning the emigration of the saints, according to section 136. And it's concerned with uh, camp organization, the individual behavior of the saints, and as well as governing authority. So that's what we're getting into with section 136. Is there anything you want to add in terms of a background to these sections, Brother Derek? No, I don't think so. Other than I'm sure I'll say something more about... I'll- Say so I'll say more stuff whenever I feel like it. That's that's usually a good model. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go ahead and begin then by jumping into section one thirty-five. Uh, I think we got some caveats we want to uh, put the people onto before we discuss section one thirty-five in any greater detail. Uh, you want to you want to give those for us, Derek? Well, I think the martyrdom is really complicated. Because, 
Um, I don't know if our listeners have heard the term hagiography, which is the literally it means the biography of saints, but it's also applied to any sort of extreme over idealizing biography that sanitizes it and glorifies it and makes someone's life out to be much more saintly than it really is. Now, the challenge with the prophet Joseph Smith and all of God's prophets and all of God's saints actually is that our status as sinners is still in full bloom in mortality. And Joseph made a number of mistakes, I think, mistakes that landed him in Carthage. And I think that needs to be... I'm not saying, of course, that his mar his his murder was justified at all that's not where i'm saying obviously if he did anything wrong there should have been a fair trial right mm -hmm. uh which he might not have gotten that anyway but my point is number 1 we have to wrestle with the issue of polygamy mm -hmm. and whether he was truly innocent and that's a larger question that i'm not really going to answer right i don't think we have time to talk about that i'm also yeah. not the best person to talk about that myself. Right, right. And my field is not 19th century church history. My field is New Testament, and I have a an outline of some of these things, but I'm definitely not a scholar of this period of church history. But what I do want to name is uh, that the, uh, the implementation of polygamy caused a significant challenge, and he denied it publicly— and it's sort of kind of uncomfortable to say, oh, look how innocent he is, right? Mm -hmm. Look how innocent he is when he uh, denied publicly the, the very thing that he was practicing. And when the Nauvoo Expositor was published and uh, named actually what he was doing, then he made another mistake of trying to instead of actually saying hey wait let's let's talk about this let me just let's let's back up and have a peaceful discourse where i can defend myself you say your side i say my side we're going to explain this he took the shortcut the shortcut of unrighteous dominion instead of using persuasion he says i'm just going to take this printing press and destroy it that is not an action that a prophet of the Lord should take. A prophet of the Lord should say, you know what, print everything because you've got your words, but the word of the Lord is stronger, right? That's what a prophet should say. And he decided that covering it up, and, uh, well, first of all, it didn't work. And two, I think having an honest and open discussion about stuff would have, well, it still might have caused a problem, but I think... It definitely would have uh, been a very different path, and most importantly, it would have served a great precedent to not fear the truth. I think so many of our church leaders want to go with how things look, mm -hmm. and uh, you know they want to make the church leaders always look innocent because that's what they need. That's what the people are clamoring for. And um, it's a little uh, tough to, to read this and hear it say, uh, where does it say that? In verse 3, it says, Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the, sale, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. Now, this may be hyperbolic. This may or may not be true. I don't, I think it, we have to be very careful to even coordinate Joseph Smith with Jesus, right? I don't mm -hmm. think we should even parallel them, even though, there, of course, there is the exception for Jesus. But there's there's ways to interpret that, and I think it am amounts to what you consider Joseph to have done. If you consider that Joseph started a business, and this business is in the business of saving souls, then that's one thing. But if you see Joseph as a powerful individual example that all of us can become, and that way Joseph is actually no greater than what any of us could have done, right? 
The Lord could have appeared to any of us. The first vision could appear to any of us. If you if you look at Joseph as a placeholder of what we all should be doing, then I think that truly empowers the individual, one that can stand before God, one that can receive witness from God. I think Joseph, at his best, would have done two things. Number one is point to Jesus, and number two, say, you know what? You could do what I did. I'm not any better. I'm not any different. We're all the same nature. Everything, every power that I have is absolutely directly available to everyone else. I really think that when you consolidate all of Joseph's teachings, that is actually much more empowering than this idea that Joseph started a business that's a monopoly on this technology that will let you see grandma again. And that's why we have to be thankful for him. I'm like, no, that's that's not where I go with it. So what do you think about this, that Joseph has done more except Jesus for the salvation of humankind? I mean, I'll be real with you, man. The older I get, the the more uncomfortable I am with that sentence. Not not because I think it's false or anything. It just seems I'm always just hesitant to liken Jesus Christ to any prophet, to any person, period. And, you know, as we talk about the complexities of Joseph Smith's life, Again, it's not that I don't think that such a statement can be true. I just don't like holding, especially prophets in our church, up to that light in a way that shows them more deference or more reverence or deifies them or idolizes them in ways that I think are unhealthy. I feel like in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we do have a bit of an idolatry problem. Mm -hmm, And... um, mm -hmm. This is the kind of language that I think endangers the saints, or it pushes us towards it pushes us more towards the gods of Babylon than the God of Israel. You know what I'm saying? I'm just very weary of anything that pushes us in that direction, and that includes right. this sentence. You know, this gets back to um sort of the I think one of the most noble ways of doing apologetics and apologetics is kind of has a bad, bad word, but right. uh, a lot of people think of apologetics as trying to defend your church or defend your this or defend that or whatever. But in there, in a sense, I think the only real goal of apologetics should be to remove false stumbling blocks, to remove any faulty excuse for, um, for lack of faith in in the sense of like oh, mm-hmm. um, and of course there is one stumbling block that you cannot remove, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. That will be offensive. You can't remove that. No apologetics will be able to undo that. But right. I think there's all sorts of um bad reasons to disbelieve that we should get rid of those. And I think one of the bad reasons to disbelieve is uh the idolatry of the prophets, right? I think that when we go around, uh, uh, look look at how this appears to our Bible-believing Christian friends. They're going to look at, at words like this. They're going to look at our, our, some, our hymns. They're going to look at Praise the way we talk man. about Joseph, yeah. and they're going to say they worship, Je- they worship Joseph. See, I, I had a Freudian slip. I can't even talk about worshiping Joseph because I'm my brain is wired to say worship Jesus. Right. But... I think the worship of Joseph Smith is one of these false stumbling blocks that we need to remove. That is real, solid apologetics, is to actually make the church be what uh, what it should be. And the more we idolize leaders today or in the past, the more of a faulty, false stumbling block we will have in the way that will prevent people from actually accessing the gospel. So, and I'd like to add that uh, yeah. this also prevents us from seeing the complexity of the characters in this story. When we talk, when we say sentences like um, "Joseph has done more, save Jesus only," dot dot dot, it's kind of hard to say that sentence in the same breath as Joseph, you know, made some mistakes or Joseph committed these specific questionable behaviors like the circumstances that led to his death or, you know, the whole polygamy right. thing. We, we, we can't hold those two sentences next to each other. That is not something we're very good at doing as members of the church. 
And that has to do, I think, with the historical development of the church. The martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram and the scattering of the saints from Nauvoo is probably one of the most foundational uh, pieces of the narrative. Like, that is identity-forming for the people, right? Absolutely. And ever since then, it changes how we talk about Joseph. It changes what Joseph means to us. I think had Joseph been able to live to 60 years old and actually— we can litigate some of the the things, and he could have maybe explained some of these things. He could have like realized some of his mistakes. He could have apologized. He'd, like if he had lived longer and and fixed some of these things, we wouldn't be having all the problems that we have today with some of these uh, with with various things, especially around polygamy. Um, but what I'm saying is. Because this event was so formational, it makes it so hard to talk about it. And this happens with many martyrs, many people that die before we actually get to have a conversation with them. And I hate to to make a parallel with Dr. King, but Martin Luther King wasn't perfect. He made some significant right. mistakes, including, oh, I don't even know if I want to say, say, but... Um, it well, suffices. But anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. But my point is the fact that Dr. King did so much good and then he was martyred makes it so complicated to now go and criticize him and say, well, right. you, you know, because it just makes it real hard to criticize someone when they've been unjustly killed in, in such a manner. But it, it doesn't good to go advertising their innocent blood because there's no innocent blood except the blood of Jesus Christ. Right. Um, not saying I'm not saying that Joseph deserved to be killed, of course, because I am uh, definitely on uh, on board with nonviolence. Also notice that verse seven has the word Mormonism in it. So our scriptures actually says say Mormonism. Right. It's mm-hmm. a self self-described. Albeit in scare quotes. <laughs> it is in scare quotes. Yes, because yeah. other people used it first. But. Mm-hmm. That's one of those reclaimed uh, slurs or reclaimed uh, out-group terms that ends up being adopted by the in-group. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to say just one other thing is, and this is sort of just a minor textual detail. If you look at verse 4, it says that Hiram was quoting and reading from the close of the 12th chapter of Ether. If you actually look at the original text of this, it says the fifth chapter of Ether. But what happened is, later in the 19th century, the Book of Mormon was re-chapter-numberized, which is a problem because now we and our cousins in Community of Christ have different chapter and verse numbers for the Book of Mormon, and it's so complicated to talk to each other. But the original... 1830 chapter numbers are what is uh, what would have been used right here, and that would have ended in the fifth chapter. And so you can see how they just did a a very um, they didn't footnote that they changed the text; they just changed the text. And who's to say if that's justified or not? But what I'm saying is, it is totally, absolutely. Uh, fine to update the text. We are a living tradition with an open canon. We can change the text. So that hint, hint, there's a lot of stuff that we can change uh, around some all of these issues that we've talked about. I think I'm about done with 135. I've talked, I could, I could talk more. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Is well, there anything have... I left out? Is there anything I left out? I don't. I don't know. Not not with regard to this that I would care to address. Okay. But I think you may have some more to say based on what I have to say. Oh yeah, I want to hear what you have to say now. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's hard to talk about Joseph and Hiram's martyrdom because I don't feel like we're capable of the proper reverence. Per- perhaps. In a way, that's near impossible to do for anyone whose life we valued greatly. But but there's something that approaches blasphemy to me when we talk about their martyrdom, their unjust imprisonment, and their subsequent lynching. Because that's, that's what it was. It was a lynching, extrajudicial execution. 
it's difficult to talk about their deaths because we can acknowledge the value of their lives, even the mistakes Joseph made, like like his participation in polygamy and destroying the printing press. And we can still conclude that he didn't deserve to die, that his death was unjust, and that he contributed so much good to the world, more than any other man actually, save Jesus only. But too many members of the same church that Brother Joseph founded do not extend the same grace to victims of the same state-sanctioned violence and injustice. That that might be the biggest reason I struggle to listen to members of the church talk about Brother Joseph, the martyr, right. or sing praise to the man. It's it's watching it, watching a people that clearly understand what an unjust state-sanctioned murder, murder is, a people who don't feel it necessary to talk about Joseph's past mistakes or questionable behaviors. It, it's watching those people praise Joseph and then be apathetic or hostile to black pain and black rage in the face of George Floyd or other black death that gets that 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 really gets to me and makes it difficult for me to talk about the martyrdom or to take folks in the church seriously when they talk about the martyrdom. Further, John Taylor's words are uh, as much reverence and praise for Joseph and Hiram as they are Mm-hmm. indictment of the institution that killed them reference to their innocence is made five times in verse seven and i and i think it's worth talking about a bit though uh we have spoken a bit about the supposed innocence of joseph mm-hmm. i, I want to assume the conventional picture of joseph for the sake of holding ourselves accountable to that to that picture this is uh, verse seven they were innocent of any crime as they had often been proved before, and were only confined in jail by the conspiracy of traitors and wicked men. Th- this goes back to what I was saying before. There's a clear injustice here. Mm-hmm. In our text, the injustice Joseph and Hiram faced of their arrest and extrajudicial, extrajudicial execution is pointed out, and that's something we are able to see and choose to see. Not always so with black and brown folks in the U.S. in U.S. America, as evidenced by the uh, by the fit some members threw when President Oaks simply said "Black Lives Matter." But uh, let's go ahead and read a little bit more of this verse. And their innocent blood on the floor of Carthage Jail is a broad seal affixed to Mormonism that cannot be rejected by any court mm-hmm. on earth. Mm-hmm. And their innocent blood on the es- escutcheon of the state of Illinois with the broken faith of the state as pledged by the governor is a witness to the truth of the everlasting gospel that all the world cannot impeach. So if I can stop there briefly, this, this is giving me Cain and Abel vibes. The, uh, the blood of Joseph and Hiram is a testimony against Illinois. Like Abel's blood was a testimony against Cain. Also worth noting is, uh, is the broken faith cited by John Taylor here, which is also something many marginalized communities can relate to. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite being citizens, there are either, what is it, different laws written for us because of our identity or the laws simply don't apply to us the same, thus enabling the murder of Joseph and Hiram. This is how government and societies fail people. One of the ways they uh, fail people. They, they don't esteem their neighbors as themselves. Again, we can name that, and we'll likely name that when we get to Sunday school when it comes to Joseph and Hiram. I, I can't say we'll do the same with the same. I, I can't say we'll do so with the same confidence when it comes to black and brown folks. And to uh, finish off the rest of this verse here. And their innocent blood on the banner of liberty and on the Magna Carta of the United States is an ambassador for the religion of Jesus Christ that will touch the hearts of honest men among all nations and their innocent blood with the innocent blood of all the martyrs under the altar that John saw will cry unto the Lord of hosts till he avenges that blood on the earth. Amen. This section ends with an invocation of divine strength to avenge Uh, Joseph and Hiram, and we again get that Cain and Abel echo with the blood of the martyrs crying unto the Lord of hosts. 
We understand that Abel must be avenged for his unjust murder, and we understand that Joseph and Hiram must be avenged for their unjust murders. Do we understand the same for black souls that are regularly lynched? All I'm trying to communicate at this point is that what's happening to us should not, like in this day and age, it shouldn't be as unfamiliar as it is. Neither should it neither should we be as apathetic and hostile toward it as we are as a church that so many in the church are demonstrates in either an ignorance of our own history or a moral disease that has long infected us and i think we got to think about that and think about rooting it out as we uh, move forward in our history and as we you know continue to tell this story about the unjust execution of the prophet mm-hmm. joseph smith and his brother the patriarch hiram uh, right. You got any thoughts to add? Yeah, that is a significant double standard. Mm-hmm. Oh, like why would we recognize this injustice? Why would we recognize this instance of gun violence? Like I had someone tell me because I tried to use this as an example of gun violence. I'm like, Joseph wasn't killed by gun violence. I'm like, do you, did you hear what you just said? Right. Mm-hmm. And anyway. But so, yeah, we should definitely care about gun violence and access to guns and access to uh, fair proceedings where we can have um, a restorative approach to justice. We can get all the facts be heard, let all the facts be heard and have a, um, a truth and reconciliation commission type thing to actually figure out what's going on and heal rather than pretend that we get things right or just ignore the the injustice. But I'm yeah. I'm thinking now even a larger thing about how the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram changed the course. And it actually has changed our our theological method. I think during Joseph's lifetime Joseph was wide open to influences. He was wide open to learning from other traditions and other communities and mingling with other other Christians and even non-Christians. Like he um, engaged with, with Jews and, Islam, uh, and Muslims. And the Masons. And, yeah, and, and the Masons. And I think he had this idea of like, I'm just going to like gather up truth wherever it comes from. And he had open minds and open doors and an open heart and an open uh, living room. Like he invited people in. I think after Joseph's death, Latter-day Saints became afraid of outsiders and... Um, and distrustful of people except that were inside the church. And I think ever since then, we have not done a good job of being open. We've you think been there's open. a trauma there that we haven't healed from. Exactly. I, that was highly traumatic. I mean, there's people who saw the dead bodies in Nauvoo that never uh, forgot that, right? And that lasted into the end of the 19th century, right? Mm-hmm. Um, look at Joseph F. Smith. His father was Hiram. He saw his his father die when he was he must have been like six or something. I can't remember. But this legacy lasted into Joseph F. Smith's presidency into the into the twentieth century, actually, right? So I, I think um, this is something that that resonates with uh, what. Terrell and Fiona Givens have have said about the martyrdom is that it has really impacted and caused Latter-day Saints to be much more isolationist and distrustful of outsiders and not letting anything in unless it's been from from inside. I mean that's the exact opposite of what Joseph did. Look at how much we've we've got bucket loads of revelation from Joseph. What do we have from all the rest? Right, we mm-hmm. haven't made very much progress since Joseph. We've made a little right. minor tweaks here and there, but the, the, the these buckets of of revelation cascading, these things bursting open, and having new things and, and new ordinances and new everything. It seems like there's some new thing every every few years. Some major radical thing had was was a was unveiled, and we just haven't done that and. We haven't lived up to that privilege uh, or that birthright 
And I think it's in part because we haven't been able to be vulnerable with um, with uh, with outsiders. And I think this has really hurt us, even to this day, on issues of isolationism, racism, uh, conforming to the American gender norms and the American all this other moral conservative white standards of respectability yeah right it's trying to like yeah. yeah so it's it's based on fear that's the other thing is joseph didn't seem to have a lot of fear he had a lot to be afraid of but he didn't really seem to in the end have as much fear like he just went out and did stuff and mm-hmm. paid you know dealt with it later right and was willing to take the cost. So I wish we would get back to having more of a Joseph. And I think for all of Joseph's problems, we probably have not had a prophet since him that matched him in creativity and openness. And um, look at all the scriptures we got with Joseph. We got all of the Book of Mormon, almost all the Doctrine and Covenants, all of the Pearl of Great Price, all of the... um, uh, uncanonized J- uh, Joseph Smith translation, all that. Like, look at these buckets and buckets and buckets of scriptures, and we haven't lived into that legacy. So, yeah. where's the where's the other buckets? Like, we need these <laughs> buckets. Yeah, I think yeah. there's just people sitting in the church saying, "Well, we've got it all figured out." Well, yeah, you've got it all figured out for a very tiny subsection of the of the people, like mm-hmm. straight white men uh, with with means and with access and who are American citizens, like, like the church really hasn't unpacked all the buckets for everyone else anyway. So maybe we should move on to section 136. <laughs> all right, man, if you say so, some more about, uh, some more about consecration, some more about stewardship, uh, some stuff about government, uh, individual behavior, organization of the camp. There, there's, there's a couple of things here. Like it's a bit of a longer, mm. I mean, not such a long section. I would say it's barely more than average length, but there's a good amount in here is what I'm trying to say. So uh, where would you like to begin in this section, Derek? Because I don't have a lot to say about this about this section. Well, where I would like to, to begin is in verse 8. So All right. verse 8 says... Um, Well, let me just back up and talk about verse 7. It says, Let each company with their captains and presidents decide how many can go next spring. Then choose out a sufficient number of able-bodied and expert men to take teams, seeds, and farming utensils to go as pioneers to prepare for putting in spring crops. Let each company bear an equal proportion according to the dividend of their property in taking the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and the families of those who have gone into the army, that the cries of the widow and the fatherless come not up into the ears of the Lord against this people. So here's what we've got. Um, In verse 7, we've got a, thinking about disability, we've got able-bodied and expert men were the ones who bore the... um, the brunt of this particular task of going in advance to prepare the spring crops. And this is done in order that they might use their privilege to provide for everyone, right? It's mm-hmm. not like, um, uh, and then I think a similar thing is in verse eight, those who have the means are supposed to take care of the poor, the widows, the fatherless, and so forth. And I think it's about access, it's about accommodation, about making sure that everyone can get on the path and get to where they're going the way they can. And not everyone is able to do it the same way. And I think having these differential tasks and differential responsibilities ends up making it accessible theoretically for all people, right? I think... Mm -hmm. They did not want to leave people behind. They wanted to make sure that it was organized and thoughtful enough to to include people and include people not just uh, with a, um, what is this word, like, um, I don't know, a colorblind sense, right? Where like, oh, everyone's equal. We're all going to just 
start and we're all going to get the same stuff and you're all going to have the same opportunities. Don't you hate that word equality of opportunity when it's actually not? It's very much a buzzword. I don't, yeah. anytime I hear it used, like my ears immediately perk up and I'm just like, where's like, that BS It's like from? that bootstraps business, Ooh. right? Yeah. Another word. <laughs> yeah. And there's a sense in which I, I, I don't want to call it socialism because that might not be the right word for it, but there is a sense of sociality and communitarianism that was baked into Kirtland. It was baked into Nauvoo, and it's baked into the um, here in Nebraska where they're halfway, you know, they're stuck in the winter and about mm-hmm. to get to Utah in the next spring or um, in 1847. So that's something I want to name. I wanted to mm. look at... Verse 22, and I think here's the real magic, because yes, there's the logistics, but then there's also truly believing this promise. It says in verse 22, I am he who led the children out of, I am he who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and my arm is outstretched. I'm sorry. (laughs) And my arm is stretched out in these last days to save my people Israel. Cease to contend with one and one with another. Cease to speak evil one of another. I just I don't I didn't even think of these verses connected, but now I'm connecting them. I mean, like that's part of the magic of God is to be able to uh, shepherd a people so that they treat each other well. Mm-hmm. And um, verse twenty eight and twenty nine I thought was very important. People think about the arts as a um, luxury or as an extra special, that it's not essential, but it actually is. It says, if thou art merry, praise the Lord with singing, with music, with dancing, and with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. If thou art sorrowful, call on the Lord thy God with supplication that your souls may be joyful. So here we've got singing and dancing and music. Like, Mm -hmm. I like a church that has singing and music and dancing like i think as forms of praise uh, yes as forms of praise right i wish we would do why why is our sacrament meeting so boring when it could be with music and dancing and singing like and clapping and and prophesying and preaching like actual real preaching right not just reading and talk like um and I'm thinking of the black church tradition here, but there are others as well that do it really mm-hmm. well. And why can't we do that? Especially because it's a commandment. This is better. This should be one of my, uh, um, my, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, this should be in my enumerated commandments list, right? That we should <laughs> not be boring in church. If it's if we're boring in church, we're sinning against the, the Lord of heaven. Um, I would take it further and say if, if we're stifling the merriment of people and saying they can't express Ooh. their merriment. And, like, this is the thing that, like, gets me. And I think this is why the church tries to, like, generally avoid this stuff, because if mm. it's forced or if it's sensationalized or if it's turned into something as an expression of something that actually doesn't exist there, you can you can definitely abuse these things, is what I'm trying to say. And I think to an extent the church knows that. But at the same time, as you're trying to say, there is definitely a place for all of this. Like, there's a place, if thou art merry, it says, then praise mm-hmm. the Lord with singing, mm-hmm. with music, and mm-hmm. with dancing. There's a place for it. That's what I like. That's what I read here when I, when I, mm-hmm. when I see this verse. Yeah, I And if I imagine, thou art sorrowful. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I imagine that, that these companies right there on, on the plains and, and their merrymaking, that wasn't anything like our sacrament meeting. Uh-huh. Right. It just I I can't imagine that it's anything like ours. It's well anyway. Right. So you were about to say something. Uh I mean I was just going to validate the the thing in verse 29 as well if thou art sorrowful. Like some black churches have what's called a wail wall. Like mm-hmm. you can just go in a section of the church and cry if you need to. Like cry in prayer and supplication that you might be joyful. Like mm-hmm. there's a purpose to that as well. Like we should make space for this kind of praise. We mm-hmm. should make space for lamentation. And you know, I like one of the last conversations I had with our with our friend James Burston was that we don't do lament very well in the church. Like that right, is something right. we are in, incredibly bad at. And uh, I want that to be a thing in the future. Like I don't think that has been made more plain to me than in this advent of you know. Uh, 
just police brutality being exposed. Uh, so many uh, young black people mm-hmm. in particular being killed and, uh, you know, having their lives ended and the church not knowing how to help us mourn. Like we, we don't lament well. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I see here is the Lord making space for all those things, which I mm-hmm. which I really value. I wanted to say something about verse 39. 39, 39, 39. Okay. Many have marveled because of his death, and this his is uh, Joseph. Mm -hmm. But it was needful that he should seal his testimony with his blood, that he might be honored and the wicked might be condemned. Here we have an example of meaning making. So here we are three years after the martyrdom of Joseph, and Brigham here is... um, Reporting the voice of the Lord is saying, you know what? It actually was was necessary for Joseph to die because of X, Y, and Z. And I think that testifies to the importance of meaning-making. And mm-hmm. so much of religion is meaning-making, of like, how do you make meaning out of what's good? How do you make meaning out of what's bad? How do you make meaning out of the complexity? How do you make meaning together in community? And that mm-hmm. is something that we as Latter-day Saints, I don't think we do that well. Make meaning, you mean? Right. I think we try to um, force things into into containers that they don't fit and end up not really doing a good job of actual, real, authentic meaning-making. I think a lot of this stuff is is delivered to us, and it's correlated, and it's... I I just don't quite think that that we're free like Joseph was, or even free like Brigham was here to say say something right 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 um i want to talk about pioneers this All right. poem by um carol lynn pearson and it resonates to me as a queer saint in a very particular way it's about now this is a little bit anachronistic because i think uh, Pearson is talking about the later handcart companies that happened two, three, four decades after 1847. B- um, but this is, uh, it, it's all connected, right? So in it, she packs the handcart again uh, and throws away the rest. Stuff that, that isn't going to make it across the plains. And I think stuff like homophobia and racism and sexism, we don't need to carry that with us. We need to th- mm-hmm. we need to dump it out there on the plains and just keep keep what we need in our handcart and what's most important and what's most important is uh, love and uh, if our pioneer ancestors can do it then we'll be all right we we can do it too right right and uh, one of the the things about crossing the plains is I think about those who didn't make it all those who died along the way and didn't get to see the promised land. And I think about our LGBT saints and how many will not live to see uh, our vindication in this life, right? Um, I'm certain there will be a revelation, several revelations, and then decades of work after those revelations. But there's going to be some people who were longing for that day and never made it. And that uh, it's going to be like uh, those uh, who were buried along the path to uh, the Salt Lake Valley. Mm. So we need to uh, we need to hold those memories sacred. Mm. So here is a uh, recording of Carol Lynn Pearson reciting her poem "Pioneers." And so just think about what this means to you. Like I said, it resonates with me as a queer Latter-day Saint. It resonates with me even though I don't have pioneer ancestry, right? Literally. Um, Mm. But I do have spiritual pioneer ancestry. Pioneers. My people were Mormon pioneers. Is the blood still good? Truth flew by like a dove and dropped a feather in the West. Where truth flies, you follow if you are a pioneer. I have searched the skies, and now and then another feather has fallen. I have packed the hand card again, packed it with the precious things and thrown away the rest. 
I will sing by the fires out there on that uncharted ground where I am my own captain of tens, where I blow the bugle, bring myself to morning prayer, map out the miles and never know where or when or if at all I will finally say this is the place. I face the plains on a good day for walking. The sun rises and the mist clears. I will be all right. My people were Mormon pioneers. That was Pioneers by Carolyn Pearson. If I may, Derek, I did want to add witness to two things you brought up in verses uh, uh, 7 and 8 and 22, and also name the repetition of principles present here. In verse 7 and 8, we get the uh, repetition of the law of consecration, more specifically the sharing of resources, the utilizing of privileges, or the utilizing of one's own privilege to the benefit of others without such privileges or without such access. And in uh, verse 22, God again names themselves as the God who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And that title matters because it identifies God as, as a liberator, the God of the oppressed and an equalizer in the midst of an immigration, uh, yeah, an immigration. And the Lord is engaging in that work with the saints in this very, in uh, this particular moment in time. The Lord is reminding the saints of uh, God's identity and character and mission, perhaps in an effort to comfort them and reassure. I don't, I don't really know, but that title matters and that it was repeated matters. I think we last spoke of it in the uh, episode covering Liberty Jail. So to hear more about that, I'd go to that episode but I just wanted to name the repetition of a uh, of a God who seeks the welfare of their children by making sure everyone has resources and a God that liberates, leads, and uh, is a God of the oppressed. Yeah, and that kind of comes back full circle to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict and the oh, need man. to... The need for, for everyone, white people included, to see God as black as James Cone taught, to see God as identifying with and existing among in complete solidarity with the oppressed. Israel, um, the children of Israel, black folks today, or the saints in the 19th century. Yeah. Hmm. Community is in a state of mourning right now, y'all, and um, that might make that might not make a ton of sense to y'all, considering the perpetrator was white and the victims were also white. This may not make a lot of sense to y'all in terms of why the black community, in particular, would be mourning this uh, verdict. Um, well, one thing that's clear is that had Kyle been a black dude, well it would have been different. Either he would not be alive to stand trial or he would have been convicted. It's pretty yeah. clear. And and yeah. we've got uh, separate rage. Uh, we, we have uh, separate systems of justice in America. And uh, that's still, still the case. I probably should stop talking. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, I, I don't want to say too much about this either, simply because again, I'm still sitting with, uh, I'm still sitting with the verdict, and I'm also trying to, I suppose, get the right words for exactly what I'm feeling and why. So I'm not going to say too much about it now. I may put something on social media and share it. I, I haven't decided yet. I, I just need to. Uh, be with this at the moment. Just be aware that a lot of the black community is in mourning and uh, there will be people far more eloquent than I who have already shared thoughts about about why. So um, perhaps it'll be unnecessary by the time this episode airs, but I just hope that you all investigate, follow, and see what members of our community are are saying about this case. And hopefully that sheds some light on why exactly we're mourning. Mm-hmm. Do you have any additional 
thoughts to share, Derek? No, I don't have any more thought. Well, I might. I always have more. <laughs> you probably shouldn't say ask me that. You know, I just I can't help it, man. Like I always feel like there's something else we could say or something further that we could well, speak there's, to. There's there's always something I can say, right? I think. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, okay. Anyway, I'm just trying to say we're at an hour and I'd like to wrap things uh, up. If there's nothing else to say, I mean, we could say more. We just have to say it quickly. That, that's no, the only reason that's I it. To that. I don't have anything. All right. Excellent. Then before we go ahead and uh, wrap things up, just want to remind you guys that uh, Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, has a, a new podcast partner that we want to put you on to called the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. It features in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast uh, or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is uh, dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. Right. Wait, is that right? BTBLDS. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you can also f- search for us on Facebook and then you can find us at tinyurl.com slash BTBoutlines for... Uh, outlines of each episode. Yes, yes. Uh, speaking of outlines, uh, just wanted to send a, a special shout out and a special thanks to uh, the folks who are compiling our out- outlines, uh, specifically Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Uh, those outlines, by the way, they also include a compilation that includes the Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes from the same week. So you can have a, uh, you know, a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me study. also want to send a uh, special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, as well as uh, Stephanie March and Angela Carter for helping us out with our social media. Um, I'm trying to think. Did I forget any? I don't think I forgot anybody. But anyway, the link to the outline, in case you didn't catch it, that'll also be in the show notes, as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website. And the same goes for our uh, edited transcripts. Is there any events or any announcements we got to put the people on to, Brother Derek? No, I don't think so. Neither do I. If, If I think of anything, again, I will put that in the show notes as well. So with that, thank you all for uh, joining us this week till we meet again next week. Okay, till we meet again next week. Bye-bye.